Gospel of Luke this morning, chapter 23, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and chapter 23. Uh, Brother Tim mentioned uh, the Clings, Bill and Tangy here. Uh, Bill is our, uh, he serves on the city council, but he is the city councilman for this, this area, for our church. And he is, uh, he is my friend. He's not just uh, an acquaintance, but I count him as a friend. And uh, where uh, John serves in the school there in Chattanooga at Howard High School, uh, Tangy has family that has worked up there. She has a real interest in, in where John is at. So uh, we appreciate your, uh, your ministry, Bill, and pray for you. I told you that beforehand, but we do, and I appreciate you as a friend. And, and they've been here a, a number of times before. Thank you so much. Luke 23, we'll look there in, in the Scriptures in a moment. I want to open uh, the message this morning by sharing a story that happened in 1980. I remember when this happened. There was a, a, a political campaign manager. His name was Lee Atwater. He was very young. And... Uh, he had learned about a congressional candidate that was running against uh, his candidate that had uh, experienced uh, depression and had undergone electric shock therapy. Now, I'm not recommending things. I'm just telling you the story. And so when he found this out, he released the information to the press to gain an advantage for his candidate. And it just humiliated the candidate and felt like this is the ethics, the campaign ethics. This is wrong for you to release this information, not only to gain an advantage, but just do this to a human being. Atwater publicly released the information, and I quote, I have no intention of responding to a man that has been hooked up to jumper cables. Um, Ten years later, Lee Atwater, the campaign manager, got an incurable brain tumor. I remember this very clearly when all this happened. And now he was confined to bed, attached to machines and tubes and wires. And shortly before his death, he wrote the candidate about which he had said that to that I have no intention of apologizing and correcting things to a man that's hooked up to jumper cables. And wrote the candidate a letter and asked to be forgiven, and then was made public. He said, I see how heartless and cruel my words have been. Now, in 1980, I, I did some research on this. Lee Atwater was 29 years old, and when he died, he was 40. You know, when we're young, we, uh, we're idealists, and sometimes we're quick to say things, and we think we'll, we can get by with things. And when we get older, we have a little wisdom, but especially, especially when we suffer, when we suffer, things have a new perspective. When we're close to death, things have a new perspective. And every person in here, Every person in here has things that you have said and things that you've done that you regret. And your conscience, whether it's your family or somebody at work or a friend or maybe somebody in this church, 
the Holy Spirit of God, your conscience begins to speak to you. And Romans 2 talks about how your conscience works. I won't go into that. But you begin to excuse yourself and try to tamp down and silence your conscience. But you're, you're still convicted about it. And I wrote down in my notes here, just misery. You're just miserable. Because you know, I should not have said that. I should not have written that. I should not have behaved in that manner. I was wrong. And no matter how you try to excuse it, you know, I was wrong. And then there are other people that have been on the receiving end of hurtful words and actions and have gotten angry and have responded in our way of of being justified. I'm right to feel this way. And I want to defend myself and tell people what they have said about me. But you know what? You're miserable too. And I'm miserable too. So when you say things that hurt people, and when you're on the receiving end, and you receive that, and you try to justify yourself, you're still miserable. And then there's a third class of people here, and those are people that have been forgiven. You have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. You know the Lord. But there are times in your life when you, when you doubt and, and you're insecure and, and you, you're not sure that you're saved. I was sharing uh, with someone this week about the importance of knowing that you're saved. And I, I told them how that I was saved when I was nine years old, but I didn't get in the Bible. I didn't read my Bible regularly. The Bible says in 1 John five thirteen, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of, name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life. And if you don't know these things that I have written unto you, you're not going to know. And it wasn't until I knew these things that I have written unto you that you may know that you have eternal life. And I think some people try to claim the verse and say, Well, the Bible says you can know. That's not what it says. It says, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that ye may know. You may know because you know these things. And it wasn't until I, I began to read what God said about his character and about his promises and the nature of salvation that I, I became secure, not because I was good, but because he was good. So here's what I'm saying. We, I speak weekly to people that are miserable the people that have hurt people and they're trying to quiet their conscience to people that have been hurt and they're angry and they've defended themselves sometimes for weeks, sometimes for months, sometimes for years, sometimes for decades and they covered it up and they're in misery. And then I talk to people that that are Christians. They've been born again, but They're waffling in this thing, and there's a misery of insecurity. You say, well, preacher, what's the answer to that? It's it's in our text today. The answer is in forgiveness, because forgiveness from God establishes the security of your eternal destiny and also gives a person the ability to forgive other people. And also, it gives you the ability to be free from learning how to stop hurting other people. 
The word salvation, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It means the word saved means to be delivered. I'm delivered from myself. I'm delivered. Doesn't mean I'm sinless, but I do sin less. I'm growing the likeness of Christ. I stop hurting people more. The words that wound my wife become less. And hopefully I'm a better man. I want you to look in your Bible in Luke chapter 23. Notice in verse 32, Jesus is on the cross. This is, he spoke seven things on the cross. This is the first word. And there were also two other malefactors. These are criminals, wicked people. They received the death penalty, so whatever they did was bad. And they were led with Jesus to be put to death. And when they were come to the place, which is called Calvary, there at that place they crucified him. And the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left, then said Jesus, and here's the first statement, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. They gambled for his coat. Apparently that's what they did. The soldiers, they got their clothes and they gambled for them. And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he be Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him, offering him vinegar, and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. The superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Now, there's three simple truths. I'm going to go over the first two quickly because I've already given them to you. Number one, what he was offering when he was on the cross. Well, the whole summary of this text is forgiveness. He was offering them forgiveness. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. These are precious words. These are words that that we all need because we know in our conscience that we've done wrong. We have violated the commandment of a holy and a righteous God, we've hurt people, and we need to be forgiven. But the challenge sometimes is we become self-righteous. And we think, well, other people need to be forgiven, but I'm not so bad. Jesus told a story. He gave a parable in the New Testament, in Luke chapter 18, about a, a, a publican and a sinner. And uh, a Pharisee, a Pharisee who was... Uh, a religious man, and the publican was a sinner, actually. And uh, the Pharisee didn't think he needed to be forgiven because he was religious. And I'm just going to hit this real quick, but does this describe you? Because sometimes it describes me when I get religious. In Luke chapter 18 and verse 9, and he spake this parable, Jesus did unto certain, watch this, which trusted in themselves that they were righteous, And notice these observations. Notice his preoccupation with himself and despised others. Notice how many times he uses the pronoun I. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as his publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. His focus wasn't on God, it was on himself. As long as you look at yourself, you think you're a pretty good guy. 
until you look at, at who God is and His righteousness and His perfection, and you realize, I have a long way to go. I, I have sinned against God. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Then I wrote down, he, he had faith in his own righteousness, which produced pride. The Bible says he despised others. Can you imagine that? He was a religious man. He said, I thank you that I'm not as other men are. The most religious man there, he just despised other people. And he, he dared to pray these things. And then I wrote this down. Faith in our own righteousness produces a religion that's based on works. The text there in Luke 18 says that, that these people trust in themselves that they were righteous. And he prayed within himself. He wasn't praying to God. This was all an outward show, even the prayer. And he, he lists his works. I fast twice. Not just I fast. He gives the list. Not just I tithe. I tithe of all that I possess. He didn't need any help from God. He did not need any forgiveness. And the text here is saying the very purpose of this text is, is for forgiveness. Do you need forgiveness? The second idea from the text here is to whom did he offer this forgiveness? We looked at this last week and we talked about the groups of the people that were around the cross. There were liars there. There were mockers there. There were people that scourged him, people that beat him, people that crucified him. And I said, while you did not mock Jesus, you mocked others. Some of you have blasphemed Jesus and taken God's name in vain. Maybe you didn't bully Jesus, but you may have bullied other people. Oh, listen, we violated the law of God. And Jesus offered these people forgiveness. He offers you forgiveness. Father, forgive them. The word forgive means to release a debt. The punishment that you deserve. And God the Father wants to remove that. That's why Jesus hung on the cross. And the forgiveness that he offers today is in spite of their brutality and how they physically treated him. I want you to notice in the text there in Luke 23 and verse 34, Father, forgive them. And I wanted to get to this last week. For they know not what they do. They know not what they do. What does that mean? They know not what they do. Well, I think what it means is this. It means they couldn't comprehend the severity of what they were doing, and perhaps they really didn't fully comprehend who he was. I'll tell you what it's not saying. It's not offering universal forgiveness. It's not saying, Father, forgive them because they're ignorant. It's not saying the ignorance is forgiveness. It's not saying that. They still needed forgiveness. What the Lord is saying is this, is, is Lord, they're ignorant. They do not know the severity of their sin. They do not know the, the ugliness of the cross. They, they, they know not what they're doing here. And we're ignorant of our sin. We're ignorant of what it's done to Jesus. A few weeks after, after Pentecost, after, after Calvary, after Jesus had been crucified... Peter and John were in the temple, and they, they healed a lame man. 
And uh, Peter spoke some words to some people that watched that. And he said something very telling related to this. They know not what they do. In Acts chapter 3 and verses 14 and following, watch this. This is what Peter said to the crowd there. He said, but ye, now pay attention to this. That's a very personal word, speaking directly to them. But ye denied the Holy One, that's Jesus, and the just, and desired a murderer to be granted unto you. So they were in the crowd that day. Remember when they took Barabbas? He said, you guys did this. Y'all did this, specifically. And killed the Prince of Life, that's a title for Jesus, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses in his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong, that is the man they healed that was lame, whom ye see and know, yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. That's how God saved this man, how he gave him strength in his ankles. Now watch this, and now, brethren, I wot, W-O-T is an old English word, which means knowing something based on evidence. It's not just knowing something, but based on strong evidence. I wot, I know, based on evidence that, watch this, that through ignorance, ye, you, you personally, did, did what? Did it. You crucified Jesus as did your rulers. You know what he's saying? Some of you crucified him. Your rulers crucified him. You were there. But he said, you did it through ignorance. So when Jesus was on the cross and he said, you, you know not what you do, he was saying, now they crucified other people. They knew about crucifixion. What he was saying, you don't know the severity of this, of what you have done and of what you're doing. When Paul got saved, it says something interesting in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13. He said, I was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. It means I was a bully. Well, look at this. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And does, does that mean he was innocent? No. I, I was ignorant of how bad a sinner I was. That's what he was saying. I was ignorant of how bad I was. We Listen, we, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, you may have come in here today and said, I'm, I'm too far to be saved. I'm too much to be forgiven. Preacher, you don't know what I have done. No. He said, listen, you don't, Father, he cried out to the Father. They don't know what they've done, but I do, and, and I'm willing to forgive them. But if you're going to be forgiven, you can't forgive yourself. You have to go to the cross today. If you go to some secular psychologists, they'll tell you something like this. Well, you need, your problem is you need to forgive yourself. You're never going to get over this until you forgive yourself. And I'm going to tell you that never works. Because your conscience is guilty because you haven't just hurt other people. You violated God. And until you come to him and say, God, would you forgive me? And you know that he has forgiven me because I asked him to have mercy on me and he forgave me. Then when you receive the forgiveness and you know that you've been cleansed, 
then you experience a free conscience. And every now and then you get under the weight of it and you realize, boy, I, I know what I've done, but then you remember, but I've been forgiven. And then in that sense, you can forgive yourself, but you're not forgiving yourself your experience of forgiveness. So stop trying to forgive yourself. It doesn't work. You need the only one that can forgive you is the one that you have violated his law. That is the law of a righteous and a holy God. And I want to give you this today, and this is a blessing. I almost didn't give this to you because I wanted to go into some other things, but I said, no, I've got to give this to them. What was the impact on those that received forgiveness? What happened? Well, forgiveness is a transaction, but it's also a transformation. Typically, and correctly, most preachers present forgiveness as a transaction in heaven. That what happens when you're forgiven in heaven, that there is a forgiveness that goes on on your record. And that's true. And that's a blessed truth. But because of this transaction, there's a transformation in your behavior, not just externally, but in your spirit and in your disposition. Forgiveness changes you. It's a transformation. But it's in that order. Because of the transaction, there is a transformation. Let me give you three thoughts quickly. Number one, the result of forgiveness is the penalty of sin is permanently removed. This is a transaction. I want you to get this. Because some of you are miserable because you say, well, I, I prayed to receive Christ, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Listen. If you asked to be saved and you were sincere and you meant it, the penalty of sin has been permanently removed. You cannot forgive yourself. Only the person whose justice you violated, which was a holy and a righteous God. And the terms of that forgiveness are a gift. You cannot earn it. You can't join the church. You can't be baptized. You can't be confirmed. You can't. You can't go to church regularly. You can't even read the Bible every day. You can't earn it. It's a gift. I want to show you a wonderful verse. Every time I read this verse, it does something to me. Because it blesses me. It's in Acts chapter 13, verses 38 and 39. Notice this. It's from a sermon that was given in the book of Acts. Be it known unto you... Therefore, many women, that through this man, not through the church, not through the baptistry, not through confirmation, but through this man, is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, plural. No matter what you've done, every sin, that through Jesus is the forgiveness of sins. And that by him, by this man, all, all, every person, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, All that believe are justified from all things. The word justified means your your record is permanently forgiven, is permanently cleared. The Bible says when you believe, you are justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses or, or by your performance. Now, there are very few verses, I'm going to give you another one here in a minute, that that are more plain than that. It, it, your forgiveness is a gift from God. You cannot earn it. And that's why some of you, you're miserable, because you, but there's got to be something I can do. No, there's not. 
until you get to the place where you say, I'm going to receive this. Because all you can do with a gift is to say, I receive this. And I rest in it. Now, I'm going to make a statement that, that sounds blasphemous, but it's not. But if I go to hell, it's Jesus' fault. If I go to hell, it's Jesus' fault. Because I'm a church member and I'm not trusting the church. And I've been baptized, but I'm not trusting the baptistry. And I try to help people and do good things, but I'm not trusting those things. Because on this past Friday, 54 years ago, February the 18th, 1968, a little bit afternoon, about 12.05, I trusted Jesus as my Savior. And I meant it with all of my heart as a nine-year-old boy. I meant it from the, from the bottom of my soul. And He cleansed my record white because of the blood He shed at Calvary. And the next week I was baptized, but my baptism had nothing to do with my redemption. And I united with the church, and I I, I tried to serve the Lord, and I still want to do that. But I'm resting in what He accomplished for me. And as the song, the line in the song, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, it says, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And upon my deathbed, when I look at my wife and look at my children, the message of my life will be nothing but Jesus. It's just Jesus. He has forgiven me. He has forgiven me. Let me give you another passage. I love this one too. In Romans chapter 4 and verses 5 and following, But to him that worketh not... But believeth on him, this is Jesus, that justifieth the ungodly, and he, he loves ungodly people. And that's the only candidate for salvation or sinners. His faith, his belief, not church membership, not baptism. His faith is counted, and that's a, that's a financial term. It means to count, to put, to, to put in the ledger. My ledger, when I put my faith In Jesus, God accounted that to my ledger for righteousness. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man, or the happiness, the joyfulness of the man, unto whom God imputed, that's another financial term, God imputed righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, and whose sins are covered. You see, they're still there as far as I'm concerned, but as far as God's concerned, they're covered. They're forgiven. And I'm going to take God. That's why I can't forgive myself because I still remember them. Some of you have physical scars. And if they're not physical, they're emotional scars because of your sins. You say, but I still feel them. I still see them. But God doesn't see them if you've come to Christ because your iniquities are forgiven, your sins are covered. Look at this. Blessed is a man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. And so when the devil comes and he says, Lord, remember what they did? You need to impute sin on their record. And he says, I will not. Because my son bore their sin upon his body. And I have imputed their sin in his body, and it is forgiven. 
the Lord will not impute my sin on my record because of Jesus. I read a wonderful story about a father and a girl, and they were hiking through the mountains in the grass of the Canadian prairie. And in the distance, the father saw a prairie fire, and it was coming to them very quickly. And he soon realized, he said, I'm not going to be able to get out of this. It's going to engulf us. And he became concerned. And he did the only thing that he could do. And the little girl became frightened. She said, what are we going to do? And he said, just stay with Daddy. And he began to set a fire, and he began to light all of the, all of the prairie around them. As I watched the fire begin to approach. And the grass began to burn around them. And the, the big fire began to come to them. And she said, Daddy, the fire's going to get us. The fire's going to get us. Finally, the fire that he lit began to die down. The big area. And he took his little daughter with the smoke rising through that area that he had just burned... He took her in the middle of it. And as the fire began to approach them, the major fire, Daddy, we're going to die. And he said, no, we will not. Because here the fire has already burned. And my friend, if you've been to the cross, the wrath has already burned. You see, the wrath of God cannot burn on you again because it already burned on Jesus at the cross. And he was a propitiation for our sins. And he died for you and he died for me. And I received that by faith. You say, well, well Rick, what about the times that I still feel guilty? Because sometimes you're, you're not dealing with that. Well, I will right now. Because Satan, the Bible says, is a liar. And he is an accuser. And he wants to remind you of what you used to do and sometimes what you still do and accuse you. In the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verses 10 and 11, the Bible says, I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser, look at this, for the accuser of our brethren is cast down. There he's called the accuser of the brethren, which accused them before our God day and night. Now, here's the thing. He's a liar, but do you know that many times when he accuses you before God, he accuses God with the truth. Did you see what Rick did even after he's been born again? But the Bible says there in Revelation 12, 11, and they overcame him. Now look at this. Not by their tenacity, not by their sincerity. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And that's how you overcome the accuser. Yes, Lord, I did mess up. But I know Jesus is my Savior and I I have... His blood on my record, and this is the word of my testimony. And you, it's like the little girl said, she said, you know, when I sin, and I'm about to sin, I hear the devil knocking at the door. And sometimes when I answer the door, I sin. But I've learned when he knocks at the door, when I let him answer the door, that 
I can overcome the sin. But sometimes me and you, we answer the door. But the truth is, even when we answer the door, our record is still cleansed. That's why the Bible says in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1, My little children, these things write unto you that ye sin not. Don't sin. And then the next verse says, And if any man sin, but if you do, we have an advocate with the Father. Now the word advocate means a mediator. It means someone that has been summoned to defend your case. It's almost like a lawyer, but it's a better word. It means someone that has been summoned, a mediator. We have an advocate. This is the Lord Jesus, by the way, with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He is a propitiation of our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. We overcome Him by the blood of Christ. That's why you don't have to be perfect. None of us are. We won't be till we're raptured and we're out of here. Your record, that, that this is a transaction. 1 John chapter 1, verses 89, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. I was visiting the hospital years ago. I've told you this story before. And... and uh, the man, I, I guess I looked especially righteous that day, I don't know, and the man said, are you a pastor? I said, yes, sir. The elevator was going down. He said, I haven't sinned in 30 years. Well, besides liar, I just want to punch him in the nose and test his resolve. Really wanted to talk to his wife and his kids. I didn't believe him for a second. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Like I said, you're not sinless, but you do sin less as part of sanctification. And notice the word we. This is John writing this. But then he says, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word confess means to say the same as, to agree with God. And the word just, and we like the word faithful. He does it every time, but the word just is important because the word just, he is faithful and just means that he's still just because he can forgive us our sins and remain just and not compromise his justice. Why? Because of Calvary. Because he satisfied the sin debt when he was on the cross. So the difference in conviction and condemnation is this. Have you confessed your sin and repented of it? Yes. Well, then the accusation is the voice of the enemy. You've been forgiven. That's, that's not Holy Spirit conviction. But if you haven't confessed it, that's the voice of, sweet voice of the Spirit asking you to make things right. Secondly, the result of forgiveness is a new standing and acceptance with God. A new standing and acceptance with God. He not only changes my record, but he, he gives me a standing of acceptance. Now, here, here's a little difference here. Not only am I forgiven, now watch this, but I become his son. And I'm put in his family. And it is a family of grace. He is a father of grace. Second Corinthians 1, he is a father of all mercies. 
We were talking about this the other day. Tim and Daniel and I were meeting, and I was just so full of this. I'd been spending time with this. In Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not the church, not any communion, but through Christ and His work. By whom, that is Jesus, look at this, we have access by faith into this grace. I don't want you to miss this. Wherein we stand. Wherein we stand. I looked up that word, and when the, the wise men were following the, the star to, to find out where Jesus was born, finally, when it, it came to place, the star stood. I mean, it didn't move. And they said, oh, this is where the Christ child is. The star stood there. That's the same word. We stand there. I'm not moving. Now, here's the idea. If my standing is not based on my performance. It's based on His grace. It's not based on whether I'm good. It's based on His promises. And this is all in, in Luke 23 here. Father, forgive them. It means I have continual fellowship with God. First John chapter 1 and verse 7. If we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin. Cleanseth us. The word cleanseth us is in, is in a present tense. It means it's cleansing me right now. It will cleanse me tomorrow. It will cleanse me until I get home to heaven and I never sin again. You see, forgiveness is a transaction, but it's also a transformation. And this, listen, this transforms me from being selfish to grateful. I was talking to someone this week, and I was teaching them about what this meant to have a standing and to know that you're saved. And I said, I've heard people say, well, now, now if I believe that, I don't believe because if I believe that, I would sin all I wanted to. And I said, I do. I do. I drank all the beer I wanted last night. I committed all the adultery I wanted last night. I lied all I wanted. I beat all the. I beat my wife all I wanted last night. I do. I sin all I want. You see, that's the most stupid thing I've ever heard. That that if if my mom and dad are good to me, and they lay their life down for me, well, if I believe I had a good mom and dad, I would just take advantage of them. My heavenly Father who laid His life down for me and He he gave everything for me. There's a transformation of gratitude. A Pharisee invited Jesus into his house. And uh, a sinner lady, the Bible calls her a sinner lady on purpose. And she she must have been a, a lady in immorality. She came in, she anointed his head with oil, she began to clean his feet with her hair. And uh, the Pharisee had thoughts. He doesn't know who this is, doesn't know this is a wicked lady. And Jesus knew his thoughts. And in Luke chapter 7, he he told this story to him because he didn't know he knew. Jesus knew his thoughts. He said, 
there was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly or fully forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? And he said unto them, Thou hast rightly judged. Simon said, I suppose that to whom he forgave the most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. Verse 47. Jesus said, Wherefore I say unto thee, Her sins, which are many, that is this lady who you're criticizing, are forgiven. For she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. You see, your love for Jesus is in proportion to the amount of sins that you've been forgiven. Preacher, I, I don't have one of those glamorous testimonies. Oh, oh, oh your testimony is glamorous. They're sins of the Spirit, not just sins of the flesh. Some of you sinned worse after you got saved. You sinned. You just, you're just so busy, like the other Pharisee, pointing at other people until you realize the depth of the pit and the width of the pit that you're in. You, you will never love Christ. This is a transformative. This is the grace. This is the, the foundation. Let me give you this last thought. The result of forgiveness is the desire and the ability to forgive others. Jesus on the cross was not only living what he taught, but this was his heart. This was his heart. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Notice in verse 33, And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. The Bible says in Isaiah fifty three twelve that he had poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors. He bare the sin of many and he was made intercession for the transgressors. He, he prayed for the people that had hurt him. He prayed, that, he prayed for these men that were mocking him. <clears throat> this was not just a fulfilling of prophecy. He, this was his heart. This is who he was. You, you do not have the heart of Christ if you, if you are not willing to forgive freely. 1 Peter 2, 21 and 23, for even here and two were you called because Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but he committed himself that judgeth righteously. Matthew five forty four. Jesus said, Love your enemies. Bless them. This is the word of God. Love your enemies. Bless them. The word bless means to say good about it. It means to eulogize. You don't have to criticize other people that criticize you. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And here's what he was doing on the cross. Pray for them that despitefully use you. Acts seven fifty nine, and they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down, Stephen kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. He, he was like Jesus. 
And I want to make a statement. I want you to listen to me. I had said it in a long time. It is not Christ-like to be forgiven. It is Christ-like to forgive. Jesus never had to be forgiven. And we revel in forgiveness, and we ought to. Oh, I'd love to be forgiven. But you are not like Jesus because you're forgiven. Because He never had to be forgiven. You're like Jesus because you forgive. I read a story this week about a couple that had been married for 15 years and they were having some struggles in their marriage and their wife had read a magazine article and she came to her husband with it and she said, I, I like this idea. It was called a fault box, F-A-U-L-T. She said, we need to do this for a month. And so uh, every time one of us notices a fault, we'll just write it on a piece of paper and one of the irritations and then at the end of the month, we'll come to the end of it and we'll see how we've been kind of irritating one another. We can make some adjustments. He hesitantly agreed. So they begin to fill out these little papers and drop them in the fault box. 30 days passed and she came to dinner, made dinner that night, put the fault box in the middle of the eighth meal and said, well, let's open it up. And uh, she had one for him and one for her. And so she gave him his, said, well, you can go ahead and go first. And so he opened his up and said, well, you don't put the jelly on top of the, the top of the jelly jar in there. Well, good. And, you know, you leave the towels in the floor and you don't put the socks in the hamper. And he began to read these things. And he said, I'm just really guilty of all of these. And he affirmed that. And. She was kind of pleased that, you know, the point was hitting home a little bit. Maybe we're going to make some progress. And then she uh, opened hers up, began to read them. They all, it just all, one, it was all the same thing. Just three words. I love you. 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 You know what bitterness does? It counts faults. You become so aware of the people that have hurt you. That's the way you see them. You see them through that lens. There they go again. And you overlook anything else. I'm going to tell you until you can forgive them, you'll never be able to see their strengths. One man wrote a this is very brief. He wrote a poem and put it in the paper. He said, If you see a tall fellow ahead of a crowd, a leader of men marching fearless and proud, you know of a tale whose mere telling aloud would cause his proud head in anguish be bowed. It's a pretty good plan to forget it. If you know of a skeleton hidden away in a closet and guarded and kept from the day in the dark who's showing whose sudden display would cause grief and sorrow and pain and dismay. It's a pretty good plan to forget it. If you know of a tale that will darken the joy of a man or a woman or a girl or a boy, that will wipe out a smile or the least bit annoy a fellow or cause any gladness to cloy, it's a pretty good plan to forget it. Because forgiveness is not revenge. It's not even. No, you're always, from a human standpoint, going to come out on the short end. 
but you won't be miserable. Sometimes I hear people, I like that passage in Romans 12 where it says, put, a, put, a, put some hot coals on their head. That's why I forgave them. Well, you, you got the joy of Jesus, don't you? That's not what it means. I don't have time to explain what it means. That's not what it means. You're still miserable. You're still, you're still wanting your tit for tat. That's not, that is not what it means. Here's our message. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. That's the gospel. Repentance and remission to remove, to remove the debt. It's a, mission of, a message of forgiveness. But you cannot, you cannot be an ambassador of that message if you are a bitter man and a bitter woman. And it's, for, forgiveness is not just a transaction that God does for you. It is a transformation in your heart. You see, forgiven people forgive people. I close with this. Some of you have heard this story, but it's so profound. I share it again. It's so powerful. Corey Ten Boom, who was made famous in the movie The Hiding Place, her and her family, I think they lived in Holland. They were resisting the Nazis during World War II and hiding Jews in their house. You can still go to the house and visit there. Has anybody been there? Perhaps. Have you been there? Yeah. Well, they were discovered. Somebody turned them in for some money and out of fear of retribution. And so the whole family was sent to a uh, concentration camp. Corey survived the ordeal, but her family died, including her sister, at the same camp they were put in. People were murdered with all the ovens and so forth. Her faith in God survived the ordeal. After World War II, and she's written books and so forth, a wonderful, lovely Christian woman, she gave her life to traveling in Germany and also in Europe, sharing her testimony of forgiveness and her faith in Christ. In 1947, she was in Munich, Germany, and she was giving a message on uh, forgiveness, and she was in a basement, in a church basement. And while she was speaking, she noticed a man in the back, a man that was bald, and he had a gray overcoat. She'd been talking about the forgiveness of God. And by her own testimony, she said, my heart froze. I, I recognized this man, and then I realized I'd seen him many times in a blue Nazi uniform with a visored cap. He was one of the guards. In fact, he was the cruelest guard there at Ravensbrück camp where I had suffered the most horrible indignities and where my sister had died. I couldn't get away from him. I wanted to get out of there. But at the end of my talk, I finished. And here he came walking up the aisle toward me. As he approached, he thrust his hand out and he said, Thank you for your message this evening. How wonderful it is to know that all of our sins are in the bottom of the sea. I get this. Corey said that I had so easily spoken of God's forgiveness. But here was a man that I despised, I condemned with every fiber of my being. I could not take his hand. I could not extend forgiveness to this Nazi oppressor. I realized 
that he did not remember me. The man said, you mentioned Ravensbrook. His hand still extended. I was a guard there. I'm ashamed to admit it, but it's true. But since then, I I have come to know Jesus as my Savior and Lord. And I have had a difficult time knowing that I've been forgiven for all of the things that I did to the people there. Even though that I ought to know that God has forgiven me. Please, if you would, I would like to hear from your lips too that God has forgiven me. And these are the words that Corey wrote in her book. I'm going to read the rest of them verbatim. Here's what she said. She said, I stood there. I who sins had again and again been forgiven, but I could not forgive. It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, his hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. But I had to do it. I knew that. It was as simple and yet as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness that was clutching my heart. And woodenly and mechanically, I thrust my hand to the one that was thrust out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. It was like a current that started in my shoulder and raced down my arm and sprang into our joined hands. And a healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being. It brought tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all of my heart. And for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. And I like this. She said, I had never known God's love so immensely as I did then. I'm going to ask you two questions. Number one, are your sins forgiven? Have you ever asked God to forgive?